Ask me. I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is the Liberty Memoir Book Club, the podcast where we bring you what should be the epilogue of each book, but is instead not part of the book at all. It's the greater understanding, the great lessons, and the great tea from every celebrity memoir, along with a side of our opinions. If you don't like that, stop listening now, turn back, exit carefully and without harm. If you do like that, come on in, baby. We've got stuff to say. Oh my God. So we have a big freaking announcement. New York City live show coming at you soon. November 12th, 12th Saturday, 7 p.m. Doors at 6. Chelsea, Chelsea Music Hall. The tickets go on sale soon. We'll put on our Instagram when they go on sale. No, the tickets go on sale last Friday. Yeah. Buy them as soon as you possibly can because we did sell out DC quickly. And if you want to go, I would buy your tickets ASAP. Yeah. Bring a friend. We'll all hang out afterwards. I'm so excited. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to pick a ripe and juicy ass essay for you guys. It's going to be so fun. And thank you to everyone who came out to DC and Philly last weekend. At time of recording, those shows have not yet happened, but I trust that they'll be incredible experiences that we'll remember forever. And so thank you for that. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would you call this week's chapter? I would call this week's chapter uh, almost balanced bitch. Okay. Because I have been very busy. I've been on the go. I've been running around doing lots of things. This week, literally, I'll be in four cities by plane, train, and bus. And I feel like I've been trying really hard to not lose my mind with stress and anxiety by tempering it before it starts. Like this Sunday, we were going to meet up to do some work. And I said, no, if I don't get a bunch of random household things done, I'll be really cunty to you this week. So I have to balance it out by doing just home things today and then we can work later. And I know that we have stuff to get done, but I do think it's a step towards balancing myself to be like, no, I literally can't handle that today. And I do think if we do it, I'll stress myself out too much and be mean. So beautiful. So I'm trying to find limits, balance, et cetera. And I think I'm doing okay at it. We'll see how it goes. Claire. Yes. If you were writing a memoir about your week, what would last week's chapter be called? Have you ever been to a concert? Actually, yes. That wasn't a question. That was a chapter title. Oh. <laughs> I went to a concert randomly with my friend Joffer, and it was so fun. I yeah. couldn't believe it. And I came home and I said, let's go to another one. And I went to another concert on Friday, and that was also so fun. It did get cut short because it turns out my little sugar detox was actually quite dangerous. And I did literally lose my vision and blackout and leave at 10.30 p.m. puking. I lost my balance and I was just spinning and apparently I was hypoglycemic and who knew it was humiliating at 10 30 p.m on a Friday night to be like I'm not puking because I'm drunk I'm puking because of a health kick <laughs> that was standing the concert was so fun and then I, I'm going to another one in three weeks and kind what? of that's my thing now I feel like I'm like a concert person if you guys haven't thought about listening to music or going to a concert I'm here to say the hype is real they're quite fun interesting <laughs> I'm not listening to music on my own yet that's for another day I don't know that I'll ever cross that bridge but as a thing to fill your time with live performance it's enjoyable should we get into this week's memoirist 
everybody's favorite dancer, singer, triple threat, woman of clothing, Victoria Beckham. So we picked this book for Fashion Month, assuming that it would be about fashion due to the fact that Victoria Beckham is a beacon of fashion and innovation, but she does not mention fashion really very much in here at all. It's mostly about being a musician and a performer. At this point, she had not yet given up her dream of being a performer to become a fashionista. So actually, there's no mention of fashion. Once or twice, she's like, well, she talks about loving designer label clothes. (laughs) Yeah, but not even as much as you would think. Like she does say what she was wearing a lot, but only because she says every detail that ever happens throughout her entire life. This book was 517 pages. Of what, you would ask? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Can I say something? I... Now, correct me if I'm wrong. If you guys can disprove what I'm about to say, I'm all ears. I think we're the only people who've ever opened this book. Yeah, this is a tough book. She definitely went to the Shania Twain School of Writing, which includes everything you can remember. (laughs) And for some reason, she can remember way too much. She wrote this in 2001. She was 27 years old. As I continue to believe, nobody should write a memoir at 27 Specifically, not one that's 500 plus pages. It is really fascinating that she was able to make that happen. I cannot think of 500 words I would use to describe my life right now. Victoria Beckham, Learning to Fly, The Autobiography. Okay, that's such an interesting title because I don't think it has anything to do with the contents of this book. She's not somebody who went at it over and over and over again and finally figured it out. She's not Viola Davis. She's not Molly Shannon. She is somebody who at 20 years old randomly answered a Craigslist ad and then became one of the biggest musical acts of all time. She admittedly cannot sing and somehow despite going to a specific dance academy, can't even dance. And yet she was one of the biggest pop stars in the world. This is the third Spice memoir that we've read and every single one reveals approximately two new details about the Spice Girls. We're getting the story from every angle. And I think it's really interesting that each one of them has been almost the exact same. There's all these stories of their childhoods. They come together for creating the Spice Girls, for doing the first album, for becoming world famous. Then the stories splinter off again. And I feel like they all have a completely different perception of how that second year went and how everything kind of fell apart and what happened after that. It's very interesting. And not interesting enough that it warrants 500 pages, but a little bit interesting. This would have been a really great book if someone had come in and condensed it down to the top 230 pages. I also liked Victoria Beckham in it. Like she gave too many details, but I really felt for her. I think that she seems probably funny and interesting enough. There is a British frankness that's really refreshing in these memoirs compared to the American PR system that we read. Right. Like all of the Spice Girls, I've walked away from the books being like, that's a fun bitch. There's a part in this book where her sister has a baby and she's like, everyone kept saying the baby was beautiful, but I thought it was gross looking. And you're like, why did you even say that? You could have left out any of these details. (laughs) She says that because the baby had to get pulled out by forceps, its head was cone shaped. And then she mentions later on, she's like, Liberty's head had really evened out. (laughs) While she was a freak as a baby, she's looking pretty good as a toddler. This is truly my Mount Everest. I really feel like we should give you guys like snack cues throughout this episode. (laughs) Once again, we've read it so that you don't have to. We've really whittled it down to the most important parts. 
We're going to leave out some key details, like what her grandpa did for a living. And that he, because he worked at the docks, for some reason, he always found stowaway animals. So they had a pet penguin and monkey. One thing that we're going to leave out, I'm just going to tell you up top, is she and David Beckham sometimes go away on holiday, but they have a hard time fitting it into their schedules and deciding where they should go so that they can have privacy. So there's about every time they go on holiday, there's like six pages of prep for how they're going to fit a holiday into their schedules then a couple pages of prep for how they're going to get there without a lot of people knowing. And then one page being like, and then we had a vacation. And then 30 pages about logistics. Oh, and don't even get me started on their house hunt. Also the cars. We're not going to tell you about the cars, but she really illustrates every car that's ever driven by anyone. To me, they're invisible. Victorium. Victorium. Victoria Adams, as she was born. Can you believe that when the Spice Girls existed, she was Victoria Adams? I always forget that. She's so Victoria Beckham to me. But I could also see how she was Victoria Adams. She has a real Adams family vibe to her. So Victoria Adams was born April 17th, 1974 in a small house in Hodgson near Goff's Oak. These are all made up words. I, let me tell you. The culture shock of reading British memoirists. I'm like, what is a skip? What, when she goes to college, I'm like, oh, college. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 high school. What are those tests they have to take? I don't know. The IMS? I wasn't there. You read the book too, though, no? But I didn't memorize every British school test. Okay, I want to read the intro of this okay, book. Sorry. Well, not the intro. So she starts this book, Daddy, I'm Going to Be Killed. She's at a soccer game. There have been threats against her life. And she's pretty sure that she's going to be murdered. It's not just because of the threats. It's also because everybody at the stadium is like screaming at her abusively. She talks about how people are overly aggressive towards her and David. People are constantly yelling horrible things at them. There will be full stadium chants. Victoria Beckham takes up the arse. And then she gets a call from David Beckham that he has flipped off some rowdy fans because they said horrible things about their child, Brooklyn Beckham. British soccer fans are notoriously psychotic. They actually do belong in jail. Yeah. And all of them, all like 60,000 per game. So this chapter is kind of just about the chaos that they're up against at all times. And the fact that David Beckham then flipping off these fans because of the horrible things they said about their toddler becomes national front page news about what an evil person David Beckham is. Then the chapter ends on this cliffhanger. Have you heard of Andrew Morton? And she says, don't think so. And he says, well, you have now. So the reason this chapter is important to me is because, first of all, it does actually, I think, do a good job of illustrating like the chaos that they were up against every single day. And it does do that good, like, here's where we are now. Let's rewind. Like, it puts you in that place of toxic 2000s culture where everyone was absolutely batshit crazy to celebrities at all times. I think it was really hard in England, especially because I, I think it was worse there than it is here. And it was horrible here. I think David was up against it. Victoria was up against it. And then they give you this cliffhanger. Who is Andrew Morton? And you're like, who is Andrew Morton? When will we find out? 400 pages later, we'll find out. Okay. The way this book is written, it started off not strong. Like I knew it was going to be a lot because it's 500 pages long and I was holding it in my hands. But it does paint the picture that they want to paint. And then she like loses the brush. I have to say I disagree. I felt from page one that this book was chaotic and made no sense. And <laughs> it was the opposite of pulled me in. I was repulsed by this book. I was repelled out of the book. I think I put it down and couldn't pick it back up for another three or four hours because I was like, that 
was so inexplicably complicated. I have no idea what's going on. Every sentence you're meeting somebody new, every sentence something else is being thrown at them, I guess it matches the chaos that they're experiencing. But as a reader, it's just impenetrable. You're like, what is going on? And as Ashley said, do you know who Andrew Morton is? I don't think so. Well, you do now. They don't explain it for pages and pages. And you don't know who Andrew Morton is either. Andrew Morton is a ghostwriter. He comes up again in a lawsuit later. And he's not the main character in that lawsuit. This book was really hard to walk through and you could tell right away. And then she just gets into her childhood with every minute detail. I really think she sat down and everything she could remember is in this book. I think every memory in her brain is in this book. So she moves on to her childhood and it's like, I grew up going to Michael Bolton concerts and then I went to this and it's all there. It's so boring. It's all there. She has a sister, Louise, who was much prettier than she was. She also saw fame when she was like eight years old and from then on was like, I want to go to fame school and then be famous. So she was not smart. She didn't do well in school. They thought that she had learning disabilities, but they didn't have that vocabulary back then. She also apparently had bad acne. She had a gap tooth. She didn't have many friends. She didn't have any friends. She was only friends with her family. She had polycyp cystic ovaries she didn't know she wouldn't know for another 20 years but she had like a hormone imbalance it caused her to go from being extremely skinny as a little girl to out of nowhere she put on a lot of weight as a teenager this is through her perspective but she paints this picture of being somebody who struggled in school struggled socially had low self-esteem wasn't that interested in looks but the one thing she loved more than anything was dance and she wanted to be famous yeah so she wanted to be a dancer she enrolled in a bunch of dance classes she said, I was so eager to perform. I felt more at home on the stage than sitting behind a desk. She's taking like several dance classes a night and her mom is shuttling her around town because I guess they're not even all in the same location. Um, but her parents seem very supportive. She calls her dad a bit of a workaholic. They're just an upper middle class family. She's taking dance class. She goes to dance high school. She's, hold on, let me just say, I know I'm not pretty. Everyone likes Louise. They don't like me and who can blame them with my pinched face and scraped back hair. I look like one of those children who get put up for adoption. So she also says she's not a naturally talented dancer, but she has an incredible work ethic that she says she gets from her dad. And she knew that if she wanted to get anywhere, she was just going to have to work twice as hard as everybody at it. And so she does. She like dedicates herself hardcore to dance. And it doesn't even matter that it doesn't come easy. It's so much fun. It's all she wants to do. She says, I felt like every bit of me was a spare part that didn't really fit. Every bit of me was ugly. It must be. Otherwise, why did no one want to be my friend? One day I'd show them. One day I'd be famous. And then they'd be sorry. And she really does carry this attitude into the time this book comes out. She really loves to kind of stick it to the mean kids. I don't even know if people were mean to her if they just didn't hang out with her. She only hangs out with her family. She misses them a lot. I think she goes away from home for like one night before she's like, I'm never doing that again until I go to college. So she ends up going to college, which was high school. Important to know. And she applies to all the dance schools and she gets waitlisted for the top one, Miss Lane's school but she gets in because somebody doesn't go. And I have to say reading this because of what college is in the US, I was thinking of Juilliard. But then once I realized that it's not university, I was like, oh, she just went to some performing arts school in her local town. So she goes and she spends three years there. The first year she lives with a local family. The second year her parents buy her a flat that she has three roommates in and they all split rent and pay rent to her parents. Apparently she didn't make friends with any of them. She had one best friend. So she wasn't a complete loser, but she... Didn't ever have a ton of friends. She had one friend and she wasn't one of the favorites of the school. She was always put in the back. She was often 
bullied by the teachers for her weight. She was like ballet heavy. She wasn't human heavy. Yeah, it was the 80s and you were allowed to say whatever you wanted to whoever you wanted. Yeah. But she was in the back. She didn't get a lot of attention and it wasn't expected that she would go on to be successful. So she starts dating this guy named Mark. He is kind of an asshole. So he ends up moving in with Victoria's parents while she's in college. No one at college believes she even has a boyfriend because he refuses to come visit her. It's about an hour drive and he'll never do it. Meanwhile, she every weekend takes like three trains and a bus to go visit him. I just found this really relatable (laughs) for a teenager, especially one weekend he's supposed to come visit and he makes an excuse not to. And she said the other girls in the flat had gone out or gone home and I didn't know how I got through it. I bought a bottle of wine and some tins of peaches and spent the whole evening squeezing my spots and just cried and cried and cried. (laughs) I feel like that's such a freshman year of college American style to be like, this boy was mean to me. I'm just going to sit here and eat food that doesn't make sense and like pop my face. (laughs) She keeps calling pimples spots and it is a much softer, kinder way to refer to them. It's almost sweet. So she's dating Mark. He's living with her parents. Her parents seem super indulgent. Even though he works for his own dad, he's living for free with her parents. And they also will give him pocket change all the time. If they go out, he'll say, oh, I can't afford it because I'm saving my own money. So her mom will pay for him to take her out on dates. She buys his presents for Victoria's birthday and things like that. It's very odd. Very enmeshed. Senior year of her school, they get engaged. And she says, I never for one moment thought I would marry Mark. Getting engaged was just getting engaged. You had a party and you got a nice ring. All the girls at college were getting engaged. I don't even think Mark asked me to marry him. It was more, did I want to get engaged? So I thought, why not? And then she says the only person who wasn't happy for her was her sister, who was 15. And she goes, I'm not staying here to see you mess up your life. And then she left, packed a suitcase, and went to stay with a friend from school. I don't understand the moving about of everybody. Everyone's just running around. I guess if you've seen Skins in England, it's normal for kids to not live with their parents anymore. I just can't imagine my little brother moving out of the house because he hates my boyfriend so much. Well, your boyfriend, did he live in the house? That's actually very fair. (laughs) It's so funny for your boyfriend to live in your house and you don't. So she graduates college and she starts auditioning. She moves to London and she's... She pretty quickly gets cast in an East End show called Bernie. She says she wasn't a great singer, but she was a great dancer. I hadn't done a lot of singing, but I've always been able to belt something out with mine air. I could make up for the fact that I wasn't the best singer by doing all the moves and drawing attention away from my vocals. I didn't want to showcase my voice. I wanted to showcase my personality. So she auditions for one of these shows and gets hired as a backup dancer. And she's stoked. Yeah, I think that is a really big deal. I feel like if you're trying to become a musical theater person, this is just the first step. So she gets it. The show runs for a couple months, maybe about six weeks, and then it closes. Yeah. So it runs in previews for six weeks, and then it doesn't get picked up to actually go to the West End. However, it runs long enough for Mark and her family to come visit and watch the opening night. And Mark, of course, is a douchebag and says it sucks. Yeah. And she's like, I wasn't looking for a lot, but I think he could have been nice. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he could have been nice. She also mentions that he's a bit of an attention whore. And so him refusing to give her credit for anything has a lot to do with the fact that he likes the attention on himself. So she does all the odd jobs. She is auditioning for everything she can. She seems extremely dedicated and organized every week. She gets her little paper, as they all did, whatever it was called, the mirror or something. The stage. The stage. And she circles every open call. She puts it in her little book. 
She takes as many classes as she can. She works odd jobs. She's handing out leaflets. Then she sees an advert in stage, Girl Singers Wanted for Pop Group. So she goes to this open call. She auditions and she ends up in a group. I know you're thinking the Spice Girls. No, not the Spice Girls. It was a group called Persuasion. She gets picked for this band. They start auditioning. It's a total kind of grappy operation. Very unprofessional. I don't, she doesn't have anything good to say about it other than she got picked for something. So she was working out with them for two months. And by working with, it just means rehearsing. And then she sees another ad. Wanted. Are you 18 to 23 with the ability to sing dance? Are you streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, dedicated? Auditions on the 27th of March, 1994. So she, yeah, she goes and there's so many girls. She says for the persuasion, there was like 10 people in the room. And then for this one, there was like a line down the block. And she goes, okay, well, this feels more professional, but less likely that I'll get it. So she's auditioning. She remembers exactly the moment she met all of the Spice Girls. She had met Jerry at an audition before. They'd become really close and she felt very just like immediately drawn to a few of them. Here was Jerry. We gave each other big smiles of recognition and I suddenly felt that I wanted her to be my friend. I thought at the time it was because I didn't know anyone else, but I later realized that everybody felt like this around Jerry. She had a daring streak in her that everyone wanted to be a part of, the same as Melanie Brown. I also found this interesting. After a while, it dawned on me how the other three were all wearing these little short skirts and I looked totally different. Long, straight, dark hair, my usual slimming black, leggings, tight top, and a pair of big black boots. That's just interesting to me that she was wearing like combat boots and black when she became known for the little Gucci dress. She has a real body issue, and so she always dresses to like hide and distort her body. So I think she was always probably wearing slimming black outfits. Mm -hmm. So they keep coming back. They have several auditions. She keeps making it further and further and further. Then they have another singing audition and they make her sing a pop song because they're like, you can't keep singing this minor. Is, what is that song? I think it's from Burlesque. I think it's the Liza Minnelli song. Okay. Well, they're like, stop singing that song. You have to sing a pop song. This is a pop group. And they pick one for her. It's not in her key. She sings half of it and goes, look, I can't do this. I sound like a cat. The other girls were looking at the ground. I was desperate. I had done so well getting this far with the audition and I was slipping and it was slipping away from me like a piece of soap in the bath. But I can sing, I promise you. I really can sing. This is just not in my key. I stood there, hands on my hips like a school prefect. And that's where my personality came through. I didn't look away. I wasn't apologetic. I just stared at them, willing them to believe me. I guess they did. Somehow that works to be like, I can sing, just not now. <laughs> And then they send her another song and they're like, can you do this one? And it was Stevie Wonder. And she's like, yes, my family loves Stevie Wonder. This is a perfect song for me. So she ends up getting chosen for the Spice Girls for this week-long camp that they were going to do to see if they could get them to really gel together. Because during the final auditions, even though they liked the five girls they'd chosen, they were still not sure what was going on. So they kind of still were competitive with each other. They weren't gelling their voices. They were trying to stand out against each other. So at this point, it is Victoria Adams, Mel C, Mel B, Jerry, and as we remember from the other Spice Girls books, Michelle Stevenson. Michelle Stevenson made Posh Spice look poor. So the three girls, Mel C, Mel B, and Jerry all came from somewhat broken homes. They were out on their own. They were fending for themselves. Posh Spice very much had a cozy middle-class life that she could go back to at any time. Michelle was even a notch above that and had already been accepted into university. So to her, this was just some fun little thing to do in the summer. 
And she was not dedicated. And across the board, everybody has the same thing to say about her, which was she was not getting it. She didn't fit in vocally. She couldn't keep up with the dance steps. And she just didn't try that hard. Yeah. And here, so Victoria wasn't a great singer, but at least she could dance, which is ironic because nobody thinks of her as a dancer. Everybody thinks of her as the stand in Nobody thinks of any of them as a dancer. And Victoria says several times in this book, most of us were trained dancers. Everyone except Jerry was a trained dancer. So it was very easy for us. And I'm like, all right, well, looking at you guys perform, the endearing part is not the trained dancing. It's very hard for me to look at them perform and think, wow, those are four trained dancers and Jerry. And what's <laughs> crazy is Jerry had made all of her money as a go-go dancer. And she's always like, well, go-go dancing all night is not the same as trained dancing. And I'm like, why? Looking at your moves, what are you doing that's harder than a go-go dancer? You guys are just bobbing. And I love it, but it's just bobbing. It's bobbing and it's high kicks. And not even a rocket high kick, a karate chop. Everybody was kung fu fighting chop. Anyway, but she loves them. This week is like the best week of her life. She says, for the first time in my life, I was with people who wanted to know me and liked me and I had something in common with. Um, we never stopped laughing. I'd always been quite quiet and reserved. And already I'd had more laughs with them than I'd had with anyone I could remember. It was like falling in love. Everything felt new and fresh. So in this week, she, they all get to know each other really well. They bond. They start making stuff together, rehearsing, starting to gel, obviously, except Michelle. She's sharing a room with Jerry this week. And she says, Jerry was the first person I ever felt I could say, this is my best friend. She also makes it clear that whereas they were all trained dancers, Jerry was not trained to do anything. And she required a lot of extra help. And she says everybody took time out of their schedules to help her. And if she hadn't been in the group, they could have gone much faster. But nobody mind helping Jerry because she worked so hard at it. And when they got home, she would keep practicing alone. Whereas Michelle, who couldn't keep up, would always want to go tan. And this has been stated across the board that all Michelle ever wanted to do was tan and she didn't have the drive. So after this one week of prep, these managers end up sending them to a house for months to prepare for potentially a showcase where they'd hopefully get a record deal or meet writers to work with and start creating a demo. So in this house, when they're training, they're doing like dance class every day. They're singing together. They have like a voice lesson. It's just like a nonstop pop star training camp. And they're all working hard at it and they all want it so badly. And but they're not all Michelle but not Michelle. And they're all really gelling, even though it's hard for them and they do have to train and learn how to blend their voices. They all have this real instinct about what they want it to be. And it's one equal. They don't want there to be a main singer. And two, they want to be able to be themselves and write their own songs. And that's really important to them. And they all feel that equally. And the two guys who run it, Bob and Chris are like, no, you need a lead singer and you need to all dress the same. And we're going to bring in writers to write you guys songs. Yeah. So anyway, then they talk to Bob and Chris to be like, what the fuck is up with Michelle? And Bob and Chris are like, yeah, you're right. That's not working. So they dismiss Michelle. Posh does feel bad about it, but she did not say nice things about Michelle. She's like, I wish we'd gotten to say goodbye. Anywho. And then they show up with Emma Bunton. And right away, everybody loves her in five minutes. They like meet her at the train station. They pick her up and they can tell she's great. She does say that Emma showed up holding hands with her mom. It really does seem like Emma was a baby. That's the trick to the Spice Girls is they are exactly who they seem to be. The baby one was a baby. They were exactly who you think they are. They're not a shiny professional group that existed because of like market research. They were a group of people that got brought together by an ad that was what they say. A messy group of fun bitches who are just trying to have fun with each other. And then it got lost in fame. So they do a showcase for people that 
Chris and Bob bring in industry people and everybody feels like there's something there. Mm-hmm. Even though nobody knows what it is, she says that everybody seems impressed and intrigued and excited by the performance. And so they kind of trade information and cards with a handful of people. Bob and Chris have them now working on a demo and they decide on the side to kind of start working on their own music because they want to write their own music. And Bob and Chris are like, why would you do that? They're working on it all the time. Victoria is still dating this idiot Mark. And Who she has such a her. There's no future in a girl, a girl group. Yeah. Mark has a family wedding one weekend. So Victoria decides to go with him because she feels like she has to. And Not that-, that she feels like she has to. Mark makes a big stink that she yeah. does have to. And I guess she could have said no. But Mark starts a fight with her over it. Yeah. So then she wants to start and help write. But and she says that Jerry promises to call her every five minutes and keep her abreast. But of course, if you're not in the room, you're not in the room. That's the weekend they write wannabe. And she says all by the time she got back, all of the vocals had been divvied up between the four main women, which they could have remembered Victoria. They could have remembered Victoria. Victoria. But they divvy it all up. And when she comes back, all she can do is backing vocals and the chorus. And she says, um, I knew what we all knew. The song was perfect. Wannabe was us, that this was it. And it did make a difference because at the time, sorry, that I did a few backing vocals, but nothing major. And every time we performed it, I just felt like a gooseberry standing in the back, not doing anything. And I used to say to my mom, God, they'll say I'm the one who doesn't sing. And she'd say, don't worry, Victoria, no one will notice. But they did notice. And to this day, that's what always gets thrown at me. Posh Spice, the one who doesn't sing. So I will first say that's absolutely true. My dad says that randomly. I don't know why. I don't know why I can picture my dad just randomly in conversation saying, that posh spice, why doesn't she sing? I do feel like your dad has that to say about a lot of people though. (laughs) I know, but posh spice is specifically one of them. Anyway, she does obviously have a reputation for being the one who doesn't sing. And I know she doesn't sing on Wannabe, but my question is why doesn't she sing on the rest of them then? I guess she was always at a wedding. Every time they ever wrote a song, she happened to be at a wedding and it's not her fault. She would have been singing otherwise. Just like that time at that audition when she didn't sing. (laughs) But she could have if she wanted to. She's just not in the mood right now at her singing performance. (laughs) So she just talks about how much fun they were all having. She ends up breaking up with Mark or Mark breaks up with her because he is a dick to her on her 21st birthday and she finally calls him out about it. And so the next day he breaks up with her. Her dad says... That was very clever of you, getting rid of Mark without him realizing it. And it's like, I don't think she actually did it on purpose. I think she just finally stood up for herself. And then he broke up with her and she was very sad about it. And she kept saying that she doesn't know if she was actually sad or if she was just acting sad because she knows that's what was expected of her. And I'm like, "Uh, I bet you were sad. Then she goes on this little tangent about how she randomly started dating Corey Haim, who was a huge celebrity at the time. And they met at the studio when they were laying down their demo, the Spice Girls demo. So she was nobody. And he was Corey Haim, who I know was big. She had had his poster on her wall. And then she goes on to tell this really wild story where she says everything but he was high on cocaine. Yeah. She just says he was really random and had a lot of odd requests and mood swings. And could never sleep and was up at weird hours. And one night he decided he had to get his nose pierced in that moment. And did she know anyone who could pierce his nose? And so she called her sister who had a friend that could pierce ears. And her friend was busy, but let Victoria's sister borrow her piercing kit. So the sister shows up to be like, I could pierce your nose right now. And he was like, never mind. (laughs) And she's like, how weird. It must be a Canadian thing. Anyway, the other thing that I want to say about the sister, which I do think was one of the insightful things that got very buried in a book of nonsense, 
So for the whole first part of this book, she kind of talks shit about her sister. And then after she breaks up with Mark, she and her sister, their relationship changes completely. And she's like, oh, without Mark, I realized my sister was actually kind of cool. And I think that that is interesting. And I wish she'd explored that relationship a little more other than just like saying top line facts about them. It's a lot of facts in this book. You really get her calendar. I feel like we're looking at her Google Cal. This is if you ask somebody to caption their Google Cal is how I would describe this memoir. It's hard to believe. So at this point, it's been two years since the Spice Girls got together. It's been two years of kind of training and meetings. When we started out, the other girls would leap on the table and dance and sing, whereas I'd always be the one to say the table might collapse and perhaps we oughtn't do that. But they had tapped into my brain and discovered the real me, the person I am now. If I hadn't met the four Spice Girls, I'd be completely different. They brought out the daring side, the say what you think side. If you want something, go and get it. And if you want to wear something... And so what if no one else is wearing it? You just wear what you want. Do your makeup and your hair how you want and sod everything. They finally do another showcase for people and they sing wannabe and they're singing their songs and everyone can tell there really is something here and people are getting excited. And this is when they decide they do not want to go with Bob and Chris. They realize Bob and Chris are trying to turn them into kind of factory made. The song is written for you. We pick your clothes. You are who we tell you to be. Pop band. And they have such a strong sense of self and what's going to succeed. They think that their power is that they're all so different and they are right. Like she sees that later reflected at concerts. She's like the way that everyone can pick out, like I'm a baby, I'm a sporty, um, a scary spice. I think that that is really powerful that they were able to do that. And so she talks about how they had never actually signed a contract. And at first they were like, where's the contract? We're not really sure what's going on. And then as they got more and more powerful and as they started to kind of have songs and, have confidence and feel like they had to act together. They're like, it's kind of good that we don't have a contract because now we can just keep milking them for all they're worth and then get a real manager. So they come together and decide that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to cut their demo of the songs they want to sing, use all the resources and networking they can, and then leave at the last minute. So they keep sending the contract back with different clauses, different clauses. And I knew they did this from Jerry's book and of course from LB's book. Victoria adds an interesting anecdote that it was coming from her father because her father had wanted to be a musician and had actually been in a band and had signed an exclusivity contract with the lead singer of a band he was in. And then that band member died. But for whatever reason, he wasn't allowed to join another band. Like he was beholden to the dead person's contract. Apparently it was like a five-year contract that did not dissolve with the death of the person the contract was with. So he kept on being like, these are the clauses you need in this contract. He was really like adamant that they not sign something that would like fuck them over for five years. Like what happened to him? So they don't send the contract. They're going back and forth and then they do a heist. There's so much heisting. You get a group of 22 year old women together. They're going to be heisting. They steal the demo tape. They go, they distract, they steal. Jerry's always putting things down her pants in case they need to run out in the middle of the night. The (laughs) other two find all the Philo faxes. They're writing down names. They leave a note and they just grab all their shit and they leave. So they're out. They start meeting with a bunch of managers. They they love to just like go into an office and start yelling and dancing on the tables to really bring the energy with Simon, Simon Fuller, who becomes their manager. I would say no more hanging around and waiting for them to call us. Spice for turning the tables, rewriting the rule book. These guys in suits might not have realized it, but we were auditioning them. No control freaks, no Svengali's, no tight arses need apply. Which is why it's odd that they ended up with Simon Fuller, who shows up 10 minutes late as a upper hand tactic. They didn't know that. I guess they thought he was a Lucy Goose. Yeah. 
They really liked that he was extremely calm. They liked that he seemed calm and collected to balance out their jumping on the tables and singing. So they just go with Simon right away. They love that they feel heard with him. And he, I will say, as much as he seems like an evil, manipulative person, he also succeeded in creating the buzz that made them the biggest band in the world. And Victoria does later say, if it took what he forced us to do to be, be who we became, we just couldn't maintain it. Right. And so they go with Simon. And then the next step, not they have a manager, is a record label. They're doing the same thing, going from record label to record label, dancing on tables, really showing off their stuff. And they're, they end up in a bidding war. Everyone wants them. I just want to say it's May 1995 at this point, just for everyone keeping a timeline at home when they get their manager. And then within a few months, they sign with Virgin. They sign with Virgin Records in July of 1995, and they all get $10,000, which is the most money she's ever seen. She's so friggin' excited. Yeah. Then as they're getting ready for their first single and their first round of promotion, basically what's going to happen is they're going to spend the next several months finalizing their album and then drumming up tons of interest around it. So she Uh, talks about hanging out with all the girls and how it's amazing that they all get to hang out more. And she says, Jerry was different. I will always be grateful to her for bringing out that fun side of me, but there was a downside to knowing Jerry. Jerry never told me in so many words that I was fat. She knew that Sheik had told me and Mel C that we could both do with losing a couple of pounds. So she started encouraging us both to get up early with her and go jogging to get in shape. Why not? I've never minded getting up early and it was summer, so that was easy. We used to jog around the park. Then it moved on to food. It started gradually. Jerry would say things like, don't put sauces on food. That low fat things were just as good. And I could try not eating so much. It was Jerry who introduced me to SimFast. The trouble is when you start thinking like that, it's hard to stop, particularly if you're an all or nothing person like I am. She says, I became obsessed with what I look like in the gym. Instead of watching to check my posture or position, I was checking the size of my bottom. This is funny. She goes, while Emma and Mel B were at home watching television, eating chicken kormas, I'd be down the gym or swimming or eating a plate of lettuce. I remember in Jerry's book being like, Emma B was only eating baby food. She does mention that Emma B only ate baby food in this book. (laughs) Anyway, so then they start doing some promo. We know that they did things pretty non-traditionally. They went to Japan first, uh, which is pretty rare. People usually go there afterwards. And this ends up kind of helping them become huge over there because I think hitting those countries first meant a lot to them. Um, And in Japan, she's not familiar with any of the food there. So she just stops eating. She says, all of a sudden, I was losing weight. Finally, Wannabe comes out and it is, as we know, an absolute smash success. She says, even though we'd all had the time to imagine what it would be like to have a hit record, it came as a real shock. Wannabe was released in July and it really was kind of all at once. Like they'd been doing a lot of prep. I mean, at the beginning of the year, it had all kind of started with them going to the Brits, the Brit Awards as guests of Virgin Records and everyone kind of had known that there was buzz around them, but no one really knew who they were, or what was going on. They were just kind of five girls who were there. Then... In July, Wannabe comes out as a single. It is a smash success. They, from that moment on, are nonstop traveling. They go straight back to Japan where Wannabe was heading up the charts. They start, um, they go back to England. They're just on every talk show doing all kinds of press. Then it's time to hit America. And it seems like it happened to them out of nowhere. There was a day where all of a sudden the street is blocked for them. They find out they're a number one. And then people start asking for their autographs. And I don't know if it literally happened like that or if that's just how she remembers it. But it does seem like from the song being released in July to Christmas, they went from being random girls from England to being some of the most famous girls in Europe. Yeah. 
I mean, they end up getting handed a check for $200,000 after Wannabe comes out. By Christmas, Wannabe had sold $3 million and was number one in 27 countries. They had broken records, the likes of which had never been seen. They start doing these insane deals. She says that she can't drink Diet Coke anymore because they have this like zillion dollar contract with Pepsi and it sucks. <laughs> she also is dating this guy named Stuart. And I don't really know when he comes into the picture. Three weeks after Mark. She is the kind of girl who does not ever want to not have a boyfriend. And she specifically says at one point she didn't want to break up with Mark because she was scared to not have a boyfriend. She is somebody who wasn't meant to have friends. She was just meant to have a boyfriend. Yeah. So she starts dating this guy named Stuart. He's just kind of around. He seems very nice. And I think he was popular in town. But, you know, when you become a famous Spice Girl, popular in town is not really as good as you can do anymore. Yeah. Simon Fuller is always like, why don't you date someone famous? That would be good for the image. And she doesn't want to. She's in love with Stuart. Then... She mentions a couple little moments where some random guy named David Beckham had been on her radar. Absolutely random. And then she goes to a game, a football, a football <laughs> game with Simon and she sees and Mel- David Beckham yeah. in real life. And she's like, who is that guy? And they're like, that's your celebrity crush, David Beckham. And she's like, oh yeah, okay. She talks to him for two seconds. She starts thinking about him. Then they go to another game because she's kind of hoping to see him again. And he asks her out. She's so excited about it. She just kind of forgets that she has a boyfriend at home who's just been in a skiing accident. (laughs) He's been in a skiing accident that gives him like a kidney infection. It doesn't make any sense. But once again, her family is way overly enmeshed in her romantic life. It's very bizarre. Yeah. He's like broken and staying in her bedroom again. I don't know why because his family is down the street. All the meantime, she keeps running into David Beckham. Sure enough, he asks her out and she's so freaking excited. They go on two dates and just talk the whole time. And when she comes back and tells her mom, her mom is like, you can't do this to Stuart. He was just in a skiing accident and I'm getting lunch with his mom. So she goes to get lunch with her mom and his mom and leaves in the middle and lies about where she's going so she can meet up with David. That to me, I'm not going to sit here and hissy press about what is right and what is wrong. I do think to skip out in the middle of a dinner with your boyfriend's mom to cheat on your boyfriend with David Beckham is shitty behavior. I know. She's like, we weren't boinking. We were just talking. And it's like, okay. And then she's like, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I just fucking hated Stuart suddenly. And I (laughs) couldn't wait to get him out of my sight. And nobody thought I should break up with him because he was in the hospital. He wasn't in the hospital. He was in her bedroom. (laughs) That they had turned into like a convalescent center. She like got home and she was like, why is Stuart here? He has to leave. And they were like, I don't know. He can't really. <laughs> They're like, he's here because we thought you loved him. And she was like, loved him. I hate him. Make him walk out on his broken kidney. She gets home and she's like, I cannot believe my mom hadn't said anything. And Stuart was still there. And it's like, yes, Victoria, you have to break up with Stuart. Your mom cannot break up with Stuart and shuttle him out of the house for you. You have to do it and you have to carry his broken ass down the stairs. She goes, I can't bear it. For once in my life, I meet a bloke I really fancy and I just want to be with him. If we got seen or photographed together, so what? I just wanted to be with him. Because this is because her manager, Simon, kept being like, don't get photographed with David Beckham while you have another boyfriend and unless you know you're going to date because it's going to be a lot of trouble. But for her to be like, I can't bear it. I finally have a guy I like. You literally have a boyfriend upstairs. God, and like their families are so enmeshed. 
Anyway, so she basically blames it on the Spice Girls. She's like, listen, things are going really well for me professionally right now, and I don't have time for a boyfriend. And he's like, well, can we try to make it work? And she was like, not really. But he thinks that things are going to work out, so he keeps sending flowers. The night that they break up, she meets up with David again. They make out for the first time. So then the next day, Stuart sends flowers to be like, please love me. And David Beckham sends better flowers and and a Prada bag. (laughs) And he goes, I thought you might like Prada because I read an interview that said you love designer. So I went out and bought you this bag myself. And she's like, how did he know that I loved designer handbags? Really it, I have to say, I really bought into the Dave and, and Victoria love story here. I know it's a bit bullshitty, but I kind of like, did you two? I don't know that it's a little bit bullshitty. Well, we haven't gotten to the part where every woman in England comes forward and is like, I'm fucking David Beckham too. Right. But I believe that he loves her the most. I believe that too, actually. And I believe she is like gaga over him. Like, I believe they really love each other. I just also believe that celebrity relationships aren't real. So like, they, and not from yeah. a PR perspective, I believe that, like, they have a different mechanism for love than regular people. So she gets into their backstory, and it turns out, as we've said, she had had a crush on him every time she saw him. She'd be like, who's that? And then it turned out he had a crush on her. He had, had seen her on MTV Hits in Bulgaria and had a huge crush on her. And then when he found out that she had named him as her celeb crush, he was so excited. And he had looked up what clubs she goes out at all the time so that he could try to run into her he had been trying to organically meet her and take her out on a date for a really long time and then she was just at his game but i will say one the time that she had listed him as a celebrity crush was an interview with a soccer magazine where they were, she didn't know any soccer players and they handed her a stack of photos and they were like pick the hottest one and just say it so she picked david beckham can i say to me that is the truest form of crush if you hand me just <laughs> 25 nearly identical equally paid (laughs) and identically dressed men who are all professionally fit and said which one are you drawn to and there's one that you're very specifically drawn to that is love to me I agree so she picked him and he loved that about her they I really do think they love each other me too and he had already liked her from that tv show yeah and he looked at her and he said I like the one with the bob so, of course, they're still running around town. She ha- they have their romantic moments, but he's out of town because he plays in Manchester, not even in London, and that's different cities. I will say to this day, I think Victoria and David have met approximately two dozen times. I know. Every I don't know single, when they hang out. Every single one of those iconic outfit photos we have of Posh and Bex together, those are a, that's a literal timeline of all the times they've met. Every <laughs> hangout has been photographed by... Getty images. (laughs) Anyway, so then she's back off on on traveling. They go to America to do Saturday Night Live. She takes the time to explain what Saturday Night Live is. Um, she talks about how they were really nervous about it because Oasis kept on going on talk shows and award shows and saying the Spice Girls can't sing. And she's like, "We literally can. We just haven't done it yet. (laughs) (laughs) We're not. It's not on the schedule at the moment for us to sing." She says. Um, what he didn't realize that we were all trained performers and at our best when performing live. We just hadn't done it in public. In live performances, it's not the voices you have to worry about. It's all the various sound systems and the balance between you and the musicians. Duh. Listen, we can sing live and we will, but it's actually not about that. It's about the microphones more. And when the microphones figure out their shtick, I'll tell you what, 
five pop stars in one band. No one's ever done that before. And there's not a single venue in the world that has five microphones. <laughs> when we figure out how to put that many amps in a room, we'll call you Oasis, but it can't be done scientifically. We are trained performers, just not me for singing and not Jerry for anything. Anyway, so then they're getting ready for Spice World. Everything seems hard. Here's just a crazy, I mean, listen, we're on page 216 and we haven't even scratched the surface, but I must dig into one of the craziest lines I've ever heard. They're <laughs> filming a music video and she goes, not only that, I was really stressed. There's this disease you can get from being wet in water that has rat's urine in it. It's no, this called- is when they're shooting Spice World and she and Mel C have to go in the, the Thames. Oh, yeah. So they're shooting. Sorry. This is my Spice World. And it's called Vile's disease. And you can die of it. And I know that I've always been a worrier, but the husband of a friend of my nan's got it at the war. <laughs> he was in the Navy and he died. So I'm not totally paranoid. <gasps> my nan knows someone who knows someone who went to war and died. That's why this movie set should be <laughs> shut down. I'm sorry, but if someone can die at war, it can happen to any of us. <laughs> I've always said being a pop star is a war. <laughs> Love is a battlefield. No one will ever know how hard we worked. So much for thinking I'd see more of David. We didn't see anyone. My family was allowed on the set once. I pleaded with Simon to let Louise and Christian come. They would have loved it so much. No. I mean, they're very busy, but also the times that they probably could see family Simon doesn't let it happen. He like wants to keep them separate from their families. She says at one point when she was like kind of early in dating David Beckham, they wouldn't even let families backstage at shows. And David Beckham's mom came to one of her shows and was allowed backstage because Simon thought it was like good press to hype up the Posh and Beck story. But Posh's own mom wasn't allowed backstage, which is sad. So things are getting hot and heavy. Posh and Beck's is a fixture in the press. And who takes notice? Crazies. Murderers. She's in his house one day rummaging around for batteries and finds two bullets with their names on it. And Someone it, had mailed David Beckham bullets and there's, a threatening note. It said, there's one for each of you. You're both getting it. I cannot believe he kept them where batteries would be. Yeah, she was looking for batteries and she found a bullet with her name on it. Everyone has that cabinet or drawer in their kitchen that just loosey-goose things go. And it's just like takeout menus, lighters death threats, whatever. When she says she'd pulled out like two shiny bullets with their names on them, I was like, jewelry? That's what I thought too. I was like, (laughs) an engagement ring? (laughs) And then it was a death threat. Yikes. However, they were so scared, they go to a nearby hotel where we had a lovely light room overlooking the garden. And the second night we were there, David proposed to me. He went down on knee and he asked me to marry him. So then they don't have rings. It was kind of spur of the moment. So they decide to wear rings that they were already wearing on their ring fingers. And then the press runs away. She's like, we didn't tell anyone. We were so excited to just keep it between ourselves. Everyone saw us wearing rings on our engagement ring spot. And there it was headlines. How did they know? She's like, the only person I told was my mom. So who leaked it? And then she's like, when the photos came out with circled ring fingers wearing rings on them, we had told them. David was just wearing a ring on his ring finger because his other finger had an infection. And I always wear rings on my left hand. It's like they have photos of you from last week, Posh. They know it's not true. Yeah. So everyone was freaking out with the suspicion that they were engaged, which they were engaged and making it obvious that they were engaged. Like it wasn't a shocking clue. You're you're wearing an engagement ring. 
The symbol of engagement. The symbol of engagement is on your hand. And then she's like, it would have taken a miracle to get this off the front page. Luckily, Princess Diana dies. So we were bumped to page three. Um, God, Princess Diana's death is British 9-11. Everyone can tell you exactly how that news affected them. So then they go to Spice Camp, which is where they live for a month to prep for their upcoming world tour. They've never performed live outside of the SNL, so it's a really big deal. And they are working 12 hours a day, just dancing their little butts off, shimmying and shaking and high kicking around the grounds yeah. in preparation. They're so freaking nervous. They're so freaking nervous because there's a lot of pressure on these live shows because of all of the speculation that they can't sing. And I will say... She keeps on saying we were live performers. Performing live was the part that was natural to us. But they have to go to boot camp in order to do a live performance. And then when we watch that live performance, they're really just kind of bobbing. And I I don't like they were doing exactly the moves. If you had been thrown out there as the new sixth member. It's like what you were if you were like really getting into it at karaoke, that's what the performance would have looked like. It's exactly how you would have pantomimed, oh shit, I'm up here on stage. What would a pop star do now? And it's nice. Like it looks like a fun show, but I don't know that it was something that I would have expected took like a month of boot camp to figure out, especially for trained dancers. Photographs taken for the Spice Girls magazine show us all larking around and having fun, but it was not a happy time. None of us were happy. But instead of talking about it like we would have done in the old days, we just kept to our rooms. So this is where I feel like it diverges. This is where I feel like everyone starts having a bit of a different experience. This is when Simon is creeping in and trying to like control everything and everyone at all times. They also start becoming just like stupid famous. She has this kind of section where she talks about all the celebrities that like want her autograph. Yeah, and she can't believe it. But she says, when you're unhappy, you're inclined to think that you're the odd one out. But sometime later that week, I was sitting on the ironing board, I was sitting on the ironing board talking to Jerry in a little laundry room that was on the same floor as our bedrooms. Tell me, Jerry. I paused, looking for the right words. Are you really happy with Simon? There was another pause. Jerry walked over the door and looked into the corridor. Nobody. Then she gave me a look that was just so sad. No. So what do you think we should do? I just don't know. Posh is convinced that Simon is trying to destabilize them and like take them away from each other. They start all feeling quite isolated from each other. They're isolated from their families. Then Simon gets them to agree to this thing called a tax year off, which is where when you essentially don't live in the UK, you don't have to pay the UK taxes. So for one year, they will only be allowed in the UK for 65 days. And this is going to supposed to be easy because they're going on tour anyway. So they'll be out of town no matter what. But what this creates is like a hellish year where they cannot go home legally. And I don't know why. Just pay your fucking taxes. The amount of trauma that this causes, I mean, this literally ends up breaking up the Spice Girls more or less because they are all driven to a breakdown point. And it's like, just pay your taxes. So around this time, uh, Victoria's sister is pregnant. And in order for her to meet her niece when her niece is born, they have to like coordinate flights. Every time they're flying back into the UK, they coordinate flights through Norway so that they can make sure they're landing after midnight and leaving before midnight the next day so that it only gets counted as one day because their 65 days are so precious. So she has to like fly through Norway, land in England after midnight, get to the hospital, visit with her sister, take a nap, and then leave again by midnight in order to like 
not use up two of her days, but still get to meet her new niece. It's psychotic. And then on top of this, Simon would get us on our own and tell us things that showed people had been talking. One example, me and food. He made no secret of the fact that he knew exactly what I was eating and not eating. It might have been for my own good, but that's not the point. Someone was grassing me up, but who? Another British word that I can guess by context, but I don't know at all. (laughs) And so it really just shows that Simon was, he wouldn't let their families visit. He was keeping them apart. He said that she says that he would randomly pick a favorite who could do no wrong and everybody else he would be so mad at. And then one day he would just drop you and pick a new favorite. And then he was constantly keeping them on the edge of their That toes. is a really classic manipulation tactic. And they also said that because they were doing this year out, they were like, oh, well, we'll set up a home base in Ireland. That way we're, we'll still be nearby. And like, I don't know, that, that still works, right? And he was like, no. And he only mm-hmm. said it so that their families couldn't come visit. He really wanted to keep them isolated and afraid. He also was very anti them having boyfriends because apparently he always said a boy is going to break this band up. And it did, Simon. You're the boy. <laughs> you're not a man. You're just a boy. A little spice boy. Anyway, so they dump Simon. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Again, hijinks. They do this crazy thing where Jerry steals Simon's personal assistant's phone so that they can maintain all of their contacts. Simon has to go to the hospital for some reason. She doesn't explain why. Just out of nowhere, she's like, Simon was in the hospital. And it's like, okay. The timing was perfect. He couldn't chase us. So they steal the phone. They steal as much as they can so that they have all the contacts. And then they call the lawyer and drop him. And they're at this rehearsal pretending like nothing is going to happen, waiting for the shoe to drop, trying to figure out when he's going to find out. They are on this tour, this literal international tour. They fire their manager and he They takes, don't have a home. They can't go home because they're not paying taxes. And he takes the entire team. The security team, I don't know why. I guess they were all, everybody assumed that the Spice Girls were being propped up by him. So when he left, everybody just thought the whole shindig was over. And it's like, well, they well, have- Also in Jerry's book, she explains that he employed everyone through his company instead of- I don't think of, Victoria understands that. I don't think Victoria I think she understands that. they just- Picked him personally. Well, because Simon was such a manipulator, the way everyone was employed and paid was through his company. So when he left, he took the entire team with him. They weren't being paid by like Spice LLC. They were being paid by Simon's like Team 19 management or whatever. They're just so young and it's just so chaotic. Yeah. I understand why they didn't know what to do, but it does seem like one of them could have said, I will pay you right now $10,000 to help us. So they're on this tour. They fire Simon. Simon takes everybody and they just have to fly into the next country with no security, no drivers. They're the most famous women in the world. And they're just like walking out of airports trying to figure out how to rent a car and park it at a metered spot. So they go on this mad dash to find a new manager. They pick this woman, Vanessa Williamson. People did not want to believe that we could succeed on our own. Did not want to believe that there wasn't some man behind the Spice Girls. Did not want to believe that it could just be a bunch of girls, but it was. But what a bunch of girls. Stressful as it was, is a great time for us. We were a gang again. They find this woman, Victoria Williamson, who was also 24, who had been someone else's assistant, and they bring her on as their manager. And they are just freaking cooking, and they feel alive. So they finish out most of the tour, most of the European leg of their tour. Before the final day of this tour, they're headed back to England, and it's the last time they see Jerry as a member of the Spice Girls. It's actually when Victoria is taking the day off to go visit her niece her ugly little niece, yeah. her freaky-headed niece, that she gets word that Jerry is gone. They try to cover it up for a few weeks by saying that she's just ill, but eventually it breaks that Jerry's gone and never coming back. 
And to hear Victoria's experience of this is really interesting and illuminating compared to Jerry's experience. And I recommend you go back and listen to the Jerry episode. To wrap it up, basically, Jerry suggests that this was a long time coming. Everybody was feeling it. She was so miserable. Jerry did have a really bad eating disorder. She had bulimia that kind of took over. I think she had a really intense personality with high highs and lows lows. And she just was breaking under the pressure. To hear how Victoria felt as a band member that was completely left in the lurch with the first person she's ever called a best friend, who it felt like she had been very disconnected from at this point. It's yeah. interesting, and I think both are valid, and both are their true experiences. And Victoria does point out a couple of times the difference of having a relationship and being in the band and the difference of not having a relationship. Even though she barely saw David Beckham, I think there was a real comfort for her and for Mel B, even though her relationship, obviously, with the backup dancer was not so good. And then Emma was close with her family. Yeah, I think that there was just, like, a real difference to be able to, like, kind of set your sight on a finish line and be like, okay, at the end of this leg of the tour, I go home to someone I love. Whereas for Jerry and Mel C, they didn't really have that. And it was a lot less grounding for them. Cause like at this point they have no home. They're doing this tax year out. They're just like running around. It sounds like a horrible experience. Yeah. She mentions a few times that they all had a really hard time having all of the fame and none of the perks of the fame. She's like, we never went to parties. We could never do anything. Every minute of our lives was scheduled and we were working 16 hour days. So even if we did have a night where we could have gone to a party, why would I want to? It really is crazy. If you look at it, in one year, they did their album, they did all the press, and the promo for an album like this, especially back in the day, is 16 hours. You just wake up at 6 a.m. and you do radio show after radio show after TV show. They're flying. She said there would be months on end where she'd be in a different city every day and she never saw her hotel in daylight because they'd be out before the sun was up. And it is just so hectic and chaotic. And then on top of that, you have Simon, who is specifically trying to make you isolated, even if you do have somebody. And I can't imagine how hard that would be on somebody who doesn't have a support system. And then, yeah, as Ashley was saying, tax year out. It wasn't even his taxes. I don't understand why he couldn't have just kept himself out of the country. Just yeah. pay for 30%. I would love a home cooked meal. Yeah. And I think that this is something, this tax year out, we've not heard it mentioned in either of the other two Spice Girls books we've read. And I think it was because they were like, well, it's not that important of a detail. The important part is how stressful it was. But I do think it is illuminating to read we can only legally be home 65 days of the year. I also think they're probably more on the left side of the political agenda verbally. It's not a cute look to be like, well, we were trying to save money, so we just didn't let ourselves see our parents. I mean, it's not like the most yeah. uh, sympathy-inducing explanation for why you were so hectic. Anyway, so Jerry leaves and she says, everyone wanted blood on the floor. Everyone wanted there to have been like an enormous fight. She calls it a, a row. She says, the truth is that Jerry left because she wanted to move on. Nobody was to blame for Jerry leaving except Jerry. And I do think that that is the truth. Jerry did leave them in a huge lurch. This was, I understand, like when you read Jerry's book, she was so emotional. She was like, I couldn't stay for another second. And I understand her need to burst out. But I also feel like Victoria has every right to be like, she fucked us. I want to say she does empathize a bit and she says, you know, it was probably hard for Jerry to be the least talented one because people always said I was the least talented one and that hurt my feelings. <laughs> yeah, she does say she's like, I wonder if it was even harder on Jerry because she had to work extra hard to just keep up with the steps. What steps, Victoria? And then to kick it all off or to ice the, the cake, she goes, to make it worse, we had just been told by our accountants that the new labor government had abolished the tax year out. So we could either give it up now or if we carried on with it, we could only keep the tax from what we had made so far. 
in the end, by the time you take into account all the extra air travel, both for me and my family, I don't think I saved anything at all. It never works to work the system. Anyway, so then she just kind of goes on about uh, Jerry pursuing her own solo career almost immediately. And she's cunty about it. She I goes, mean, barely so. Because in Jerry's book, and of course, I think we read that book either last year or the year before. It's been a it's while. It's been a while. But I remember being like, she was so broken. She had to go into hiding. She spent so much time in hiding. And then finally, after years of working on herself, she came out and said, okay, like I'm ready to face the public. Although and she did look Sophia at the charity and you know, there's this whole like charity chapter and I don't even really remember her solo career in her book. I think the book came out before the solo career maybe. Yeah. I do kind of remember the book came out like a year after she left the Spice Girls. So I think there was like a month of isolation and then like a month of charity and then she wrote a book. And then I guess she did a solo project because a few months later she had the solo project come out and that new Vanessa Williams who had been their manager quit. And quits and swears she's not going to work with Jerry. And then a week later, she was working with Jerry. Yeah. She says, bad taste, Jerry was back. She said that Jerry was very loud about denouncing the Spice Girls in her new work, which they were all very hurt by. And, it's, and she says that, look, Victoria doesn't want to die posh Spice, but she understands she couldn't be where she is without that group. And she has a lot of respect and appreciation for what got her to where she is. And she thought it was really rude and tacky the way... Jerry was like, stop calling me Ginger Spice. And then the minute that wasn't working, she started calling back Ginger Spice, but in a fuck the Spice Girls type of way. And Jerry even uses her to promote her solo project. She says that after months of not speaking, she's on a trip with David. She's not that far away from where Jerry is staying at George Michael's house. And Jerry kind of calls her and is like, do you want to meet for dinner? They're supposed to meet at George Michael's house. But then last second, Jerry's like, let's just go to this restaurant. They're photographed at the restaurant. And then Jerry's solo project comes out like right after and she's like well obviously she was using me for a promotion and she says she never called her to apologize for the press photos so that's how she knows yeah also on this time so they go under their american leg of the tour without jerry and she says everyone was worried about how they would do it without her but actually it's much easier to do a group of four and their voices work better and she seems she kind of passive aggressively says they were better off as a group without jerry and she finds out that she is pregnant Yeah, so in New York, they're doing a sold-out Madison Square Garden, and she has been sick for days and days. She keeps taking pregnancy tests, and they keep coming up negative, and then she asks her mom to bring a pregnancy test from England, because she's like, I just don't think my British pee works with this American test. So then she takes the British test, and it's like, yeah, you're super pregnant. She calls David. She's so happy. She says for the first time in her life, she's eating well because of the baby. She finally has something to her that's more important than worrying about what the public will say about her body. Okay, so they're engaged. They're going to get married. She's five months pregnant. And what happens? There's a rumor that he cheated? I will say, I don't think, I don't think David Beckham would ever cheat on anybody. And I don't think any athlete would ever cheat on anybody. And I think that that is crazy to assume that a famous man would be unfaithful to anyone. (laughs) Anyway, so she's pregnant. There's a lot of rumors that David Beckham is cheating. And they're all coming out in the press. There's not just like rumors. There's women specifically coming forward to the press telling their story about David. Yes. And so at first she's like, that's ridiculous. And he's like, you know, that's ridiculous, right? And she's like, yeah, it's so ridiculous. And then there are more stories and she is more and more unsettled by it. And it's just like in her head and she hates the press for like planting these seeds of doubt. And she hates David for 
having these news stories exist about him. And I don't know. Do you think that he was cheating? Yes. I do too. I do think one of the stories is a lie. This woman come, came forward with a story about how she put an ice cube ball down her. And that one felt like a lie. But the ones that rang true to me were the ones where he would call them for hours and they talked all the time on the phone. Because I do think for these athletes, and this is conjecture, and this is not necessarily like only about David Beckham. But I do think when you're on the road, like 150 days a year, you just get very lonely and you end up just talking to whatever girls you meet because you need to have something new to say. And at this point, they'd only really been together for like a year and they had only spent like four weeks together. They had spent no time together. It's crazy. Like every time they would meet, it would be like at midnight for like a drink or like a 48 hour weekend away, but neither of them could get more time than that. They never seem to have sex. I know. Because she talks about the first time they were at a hotel together and could have sex. And it was like three months into their relationship. And then she talks about a time that she loved him and missed him so much. She flew from Miami all the way to the south of France just for the afternoons they could be together. And then when she's trying to recall when she could have gotten pregnant, it's from the time they hung out before that. And so I was like, you flew all the way to the south of France and you didn't even get any? Crazy. So she, they fight about these women coming out and he just keeps begging and begging and they have a really hard time. And I think she's very honest and open about it, how it took like five months for her to get over it. The entire pregnancy, basically. The rest of the pregnancy, she was in tears and tracksuits, hysterical, back and forth. He was mad that she didn't believe him. She was mad that it was happening. It didn't even matter if she believed him. The fact that he had opened her up to this, like it was just a horrible situation. And then she tells the story about going to Lake Como with her sister and her sister's boyfriend and David so they could all try to build back better relationships. And she's like, it was such an awful time where all we did was cry that I can never go back to Lake Como, which is very sad. Yeah, it's because that's your, your engagement location. I invented it. You'll never get to go on there on a vacation with Posh and Bex. Ugh, our couple friends. Um, so but then she does this thing that's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. She gives this list of all of the things that the media has gotten wrong about them. And it's about how much they overpay for stuff. And she goes, the lie that I spend 60,000 pounds a year on having my hair done. Truth. The cost of having my hair done is practically nothing. It's often paid for by who, by the record company or TV company or whoever I'm working for on the day. If I'm not working, Tyler, my hairdresser, does it for free. And he does David's. Why? When we could afford to pay him? Because it's good publicity for him. Thank you, Tyler, and everyone else who does things for free for us. I don't know that that makes you look better than if you just paid a full-time employee a living wage. Can I ask what thick means? Lie, that David is thick. Truth. So they let someone captain England who's thick? Yeah, right. I have a very low boredom threshold. Does anyone really think I would spend my life with someone who didn't stimulate me, keep me on my toes? Does that mean stupid? Yeah. I can't imagine anything funnier than being like, the lie, that my husband is stupid. The truth, do you think they'd let someone who's stupid be the, <laughs> be the captain of a soccer team? Do you think I, a Spice Girl, would marry someone stupid? <laughs> a Spice Girl who can't read. Or could be around somebody stupid? Anyway, I don't think either of them are stupid. But I don't think either of them are not stupid. I honestly think thick might be an exactly perfect adjective. A bit thick, indeed. So then they talk, she talks about new motherhood. And I also think that she's actually very honest about what it's like to be a new mom, especially when she's so used to the constant moving around of being a Spice Girl. So at this point, they finished up their world tour without Jerry. 
They finished up all the promotion for the second album. It was another smash success. Now they're kind of working on a third album, but Victoria and Mel B have both just had children. Mel B had Phoenix like right around the same time that Posh had Brooklyn. So they're taking it a little bit slower with the third album. Plus some of the other Spice Girls are doing solo projects at this time. They're kind of in and out of the studio. They're working on some things, but it's definitely not a constant barrage of travel and recording and press. She's just like in Manchester being a mom. And she, I don't think, has been in one place for this amount of time since she was 18 years old. And he is still working. He's still a soccer player. So he's still traveling all the time for soccer. And she says that she felt very alone. She said, for three months, I lived in a tracksuit and cried. She didn't really know anyone in Manchester because she was only ever there for like 12 hours at a time to visit David. And she says that she was a little bit jealous the way that he could kind of pop in and out of parenthood. I mean, he was still working. He was still playing soccer. He was still going out with his boys. And he was a good dad. He was present, but like he was still working and she wasn't. So then she gets into their wedding. They get married at a Georgian Gothic. No, that's an adjective. I don't understand. She she names the town. She tells you exactly how she got there. It's 30 pages. I cannot get into this fucking <laughs> wedding. I'll put up photos on Instagram. Swear to God, I know I'm going to be way better about putting on photos in the Instagram that I say I will. But you guys, the way that everything gets 10 pages of explanation, how she got there, how the dress got there, how many times you she- You guys will not believe that the dress had to go in a box and then out of a box and then back into a box. And it was harder to get the dress into the box than it was to get it out of the box. <laughs> and did you know that- her after-party dress had to be fitted three times. And then when she tried it on the day before, the zipper broke. And then the guy had to come back. She gives you, a, I'm not kidding, an hour-by-hour breakdown of both constructions of dresses. And then she explains, like, the whole backstory of the man who made the bodice for the dress that Vera Wang used as the underpinnings of her. It, enough. She does, however, say, my first idea for a wedding dress was a tight, sexy number with a big slit up the side. And when I tried on her proper wedding dresses, I couldn't resist. You can only get away with all that flounce once in your life. That's I could, your exact thought. I could leave the tight, sexy number bit till the evening. Girl, same. Same, same, same. Anyway, then they couldn't really go on a honeymoon because David couldn't get time off. This again. So she goes through the explanation. I know Ashley already said this of the honeymoon scheduling a hundred times, but she's always like, we couldn't get 10 days off. We could only get one week off, which meant that we'd only have two days for the vacation. And she's like, because it takes a day to get there and a day to get back, which only leaves you with two days. And I'm like counting it on my fingers. And then she keeps on saying that they, <laughs> the reason they don't have a nanny is because she was like, it was so weird because we'd bring a nanny places. And then she would, we felt weird having her sit at a different table. So then she'd sit with us. And then in order to have alone time, we would, now we're just eating with our child and a nanny. And you're like, I, this does feel like a problem you created. I don't understand. She keeps saying that she refuses to use a nanny. And I just don't believe that that could possibly be true. I guess she brought Brooklyn literally everywhere with her. But with yeah. all four kids, she was toting four kids. No, I think that eventually they had a nanny. And I think eventually they got comfortable just like having the nannies not sit with them when they had romantic dinners. So then she talks about how she was, while she was being a mom, the other Spice Girls were getting on with their solo projects. Even Mel B, who had a baby like the same day as her, was working on an album. All right. She had an easy baby compared to me, but I, fe- I felt very left out. Brooklyn, it turns out, was just puking all the time. Yeah. Brooklyn was a bad baby. Yeah, he was allergic to everything. So then she starts kind of feeling around to potentially do a solo project. They're also still finalizing Spice Forever, which is their third album. It's very confusing, the timing of this. I think it's because she spends 200 pages discussing the next six months. So you're reading it being like, how could all of this be happening at once? But I think it's because she gives you a literal day-by-day breakdown of what she was doing. 
So it feels like much longer than it was. The people are working on their solo projects. They're working on Bites Forever. She thinks about becoming an actress. She doesn't get any of the jobs she tries out for. Yeah, she auditioned for Charlie's Angels. But then she decides that she's going to try and have a solo career. But first, we must take a 100-page detour to explain in the longest, most convoluted, drawn-out way possible a truly scary event that would have been sufficed with 20 pages. Yes. Andrew Morton. Ever heard of him? Remember from the intro? No, you don't. But it's fine. Anyway. Can I just explain it to them in like two sentences? Yeah. Okay. So very validly, they had always received death threats. When they had Brooklyn, Brooklyn received- Well, not, they didn't validly receive death threats. Very validly, they were afraid due to the fact that they were constantly receiving death threats. Oh, no. I, I don't mean that it was like valid to want <laughs> I know. them dead. That's why I corrected you because I know that's not what you meant, but that is what you said. <laughs> because they were receiving validly afraiding. They were validly very afraid because they were constantly receiving death threats to both them- as we said with the bullets, and then later, once they had Brooklyn, they were also receiving a lot of kidnapping threats of Brooklyn. So she got really scared and hired this man named Mark Niblett. He is ex SAS, which I thought was a computer programming system, but apparently it's like security and stuff. I think it's <laughs> like what James Bond is. Anyway, so she gets this guy, and he is intense, and he has an incredible resume. And he's very serious. And she's like, thank God for Mark. And Mark is so fucking intense. He's like, not only do you need me full time, you need a full time second security guard to be around the clock. And he's like, you need a different house. And don't ever let Brooklyn out of your sight. Don't let him in the garden by himself. Like never leave the house. We're going to secure everything. He moves into like an apartment above the garage. He's living there for free. He's here all the time and she can't do anything without him. And then like a few months in, she kind of picks up on some weird lies. One, he starts taking photos of Brooklyn and she was like, hey, don't do that. Two, he says that he wears glasses to fake out enemies. And she's like, yeah, I can tell that there's prescriptions in those glasses. Don't lie to me and say you have perfect vision and it's just a disguise. I can literally see that those are real glasses. And the next day he shows up with colored contacts. He's like, no, there was never glasses on my head. So there's like weird little things like that happening. And then the other thing is everywhere they go, it's leaked. And I guess when you're a celebrity, it's hard to tell like what's a leak and what's just normal amount of press, but they're in the press constantly and it will not stop. And they keep getting threats about Brooklyn and they're scared out of their mind. And it feels like nowhere they go is safe. And they're so grateful for Mark. Then something I cannot explain to you, even though I reread it three or four times happens where her luggage that was in Mark's name got lost. And then her nail tech calls her and says another man named Mark dropped off a CD that was in the lost luggage. And when she calls that man, he's like, I found it in a skip. And then when she goes, is there anything else? He goes, no. And then he goes, I'm at the rubbish hall. And she's like, I thought you were at a skip. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, there's a weird thing that happens with luggage and stuff gets stolen. And also everything they're doing is leaking within. They know that someone close to them is selling stories to the press Because every time they go anywhere, even when no one knows where they're supposed to be, paparazzi show up. So somehow it comes out via the police that this new guy, also named Mark, Mark Hayes, is like, I know who the leaker is. I'll tell you for $10,000. And I know because I'm working with him. And they're like, we're not going to pay somebody who's been working with our stalker. It turns out it was, in fact, Mark Giblets. And 
They're about to fire him. Victoria And she also to- tells a story about how often she saw his giblets. Yeah, so she's scared to fire him, but luckily at the same time, Mark is like, my dad's dying. I have to quit. And they're like, fine. He's like, but I want to come to LA with you first. And they're like, fine. And then they get to LA and everybody's like, did you know that your security guard, Mark, calls up all of our personal assistants looking for women he can sleep with? And they're like, ugh. And then her brother is like, did you know every time I come to your house with my girlfriend, he's like walking around with his junk falling out. And we ask him to put his junk away. And he says, no. And Victoria's like, really? <laughs> and then sure enough, through forensic evidence, they're able to like track down that the leaker had in fact been Mark. Mark was working with Andrew. Also, they tell this story about how one time they brought Mark to a party with them and he showed up dressed exactly like <laughs> David Beckham. <laughs> She's like, this is when I knew something was weird. <laughs> Not when he was taking pictures of your kid. You anyway. Psychopath. Anyway, so basically, this all amounts to them firing him. They find out through forensic evidence that he had been working with, dun, 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 Andrew Morton. Do you remember him? A ghostwriter who, who wrote, wrote the Princess Diana book. And they were, had recorded like hundreds of hours of conversation. He had constantly been wearing a wire. He had a key to their house. This guy, Mark Hayes, is like, you know that vibrator you keep in your drawer? And she's like, what? How do you know about that? Drake, like, that was a present. Mel B was being silly. She's like, it's just a joke. I'm married to David Beckham. Why would I need a vibrator? And I'm like, this is how I know that you have bad sex or that you don't have sex. She should have been like, you know those rumors that David Beckham is thick? Oink. <laughs> but also <laughs> like, oh, your husband who's on the road 200 days a year. Oh, he's keeping it pleasured. Methinks no. <laughs> and I think that if you have to be like, I'm perfectly happy. I don't need a vibrator. Then you're either not happier or you're using a vibrator more than anybody. But he goes, don't use it. Mark's done weird things with it. Like what? I don't know. Probably stick it up his giblets. Ew. <laughs> Rubbed his jibbies all over it. <laughs> Yuck. Anyway, so she fires him and this blo- starts a long lawsuit because he claimed, and this is where I get really confused. He claimed that he had never signed a confidentiality agreement. No, well, what happened was he had signed a confidentiality confidentiality agreement because as security one of his jobs was to get other people's confidentiality agreements signed so he just stole his back i guess pre-internet like where you kept files filed and he was the one keeping those files okay can i say not that i'm so smart not that i'm so thin i guess it's the opposite of thick (laughs) but personally i would keep my files with a lawyer i would have multiple copies i think if you have a contract with someone you can't say you keep both you say, I'll just have one little drawer in my office. I guess it was confusing because he was the one who was supposed to be keeping the copies. You're obviously right, but that's not what happened. <laughs> so they were able to go to court and prove that he had signed it because luckily they did a trick that I actually learned from, do you remember the Mary-Kate and Ashley series where they're detectives? Of course. Where they had like a little dog. Yeah, they solve any crime by dinner time. Okay. If somebody signs something and takes the piece of paper, the paper that was under it with a pencil, you can kind of shade it in and see what they wrote because of the pressure. So they found a dated copy that was unsigned, but happened to be the one under the one that Mark did sign. So they were able to reveal that he did sign a contract. And And they were able to, in lawsuits, shut down his book that they were going to write using all these hours of footage and all of these hours of recordings. And he had kept a diary the whole time and he had stolen stuff from them. And yeah, they were just shut down. "Since Since we fired Mark, we were hardly ever in the press. How interesting. However, she did live the last, live the next till the end of, till the writing of this book in panic and paranoia that people were going to turn on her, which is valid. That is it's a valid. Really and she also says thing to experience. that one of the things that was most like one of the most horrible things about Mark is that he like encouraged the paranoia. So the months of paranoia that they 
experienced mm-hmm. even with him around. Like he was the one constantly saying like, you can't let your kid in the backyard because something bad could happen. Like that is, he like made her feel unsafe anytime that she wasn't like directly next to him. And even when he was. That really is horrible. And my heart goes out to her. I wish she could have told us as quickly as I told you. But yeah, for some reason. Also mentions like a horrifying night when they're winning a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Brits, which is just four years after they were there as nobodies. I don't know how a lifetime could be four years, but. I mean, this book took me, I don't know, a couple hours to read and it felt like a lifetime. So four years is several. <laughs> this morning was a different Claire. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there was a bunch of balloons that started popping when they hit the top of the like stadium when they were performing. And she like genuinely thought she was being shot. Um, And that is just like a horrifying moment that can never be undone. She has this weird line about how her brother is not ambitious. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, he's not lazy. He just doesn't want much. She's talking about her family and how it changed her fame changed everything. And she's like, I think my sister is lucky to be my sister because she gets to go to all the parties and I do all the work and she doesn't mind not getting the attention. And then she's talking about how nobody took, takes anything from her. And she's like, my brother won't take $20 for petrol from me. She goes, I, and then she says, I do everything I can for my family. I bought my dad a car. I bought my sister and brother a house. And I'm like, okay, so he won't take $12, but he'll take a house. That's a proper long game. Anyway, so now she's working on her... Uh, solo album and she's doing this collaboration with the two steppers the true steppers I don't fucking know she goes on and on about all the writers all the producers everyone she met with everyone she worked with the a single came out it they thought it was going to go number one all the other Spice Girls went number one with their solo projects but then hers ended up going number two and everyone acted like it was this huge failure and she's like it actually wasn't because top five is still really good and I'm like I actually do agree with that and I also listened to the song and it's so bad so I'm, I mean, the fact that it went to number two, that's huge. That's crazy. I can't believe she did it. She quoted some review that said she's the breakout star Spice Girl who's going to do the best music. Yeah. And then she goes on to talk about Spice Forever, the third Spice Girls album coming out without Jerry. They like didn't do that much promo for it and it still did really well, but it wasn't like- Again, it went to number two. A sensation. And she, she said everyone was like, see, the Spice Girls are dead. And she's like, first of all, if we had stayed with the same pop music, everyone would have said they need to move on. If Because we moved on and tried something new, everybody was mad at us. And she says that we had to keep doing the promo we were doing. We just couldn't do it anymore. We had all moved on. Mel C specifically really hated everybody at this point, it seems. She wanted to be a rock star. yeah. Everybody had, or her and Mel B had babies. It just wasn't the same and they weren't able to put their whole hearts and souls into it anymore. So of course, it's not going to be number one, but number two is still really good. She also says, it's not a bit of PR hype that it really was David who encouraged me to do the album. I really had given up all the ideas of a solo career, but he just kept at me. I know it's hard for people to believe that Victoria Beckham has low self-esteem, but it's true. If you're told that you're a talentless piece of shit for long enough, then that's what you believe. So she goes on and on and on about her solo career and what worked and what didn't. And it seems like overall at time of writing, she didn't think she was going to abandon her solo music career. Being famous for tottering around in high heels and wearing designer clothes is not enough. I don't want to be famous for being famous. I want to be famous for what I do best, performing. When I was young, I thought fame would protect me from feeling empty inside, from feeling like I was nothing. But without the ability to back it up, being famous just makes you more vulnerable to attack because people feel that you're public property. Here's the thing. She also, when talking about her solo career, talks a lot about how she like wasn't sure what she even wanted it to be. 
So in all of these sessions with all these writers and all these producers, she worked with some of the biggest writers and producers in the world, but she didn't know what she wanted to create. So a lot of it, I think, ended up falling flat. It took her a lot of time to even make a song because she didn't know what sound she was even looking for. And my theory is that she talks so much about music and performing and creating pop songs because she like doesn't understand it and like doesn't even know what to say about it. So she tells you everything. Whereas why she's so successful in fashion is because every time she talks about clothes in this book, it's just straight to the point. She knows exactly what she likes. She knows that she has to like emphasize certain parts of her shape. She knows what clothes she's drawn to. And she says that it is with like she doesn't care about trends. She cares about what she likes in like silhouettes. And I think that's why she was so successful in fashion is because she knows exactly what she likes. And at the end of the day, it's just Brooklyn and David who make me happy and nothing else is important. Certainly not chart positions. I know I would sacrifice anything for my boys, including my career, even though I also know they would never ask me to do it. Sometimes me and David just sit down together and look at Brooklyn and wonder at the miracle of him and his amazing little character that surprises us every day. One of my theories about all of these details is when someone has experienced such a level of fame that every single thing they do has been scrutinized by the media. I think that they don't know what details are important because like her, if she were to like blow her nose and then throw a tissue away, the flick of her wrist would be analyzed. And so she's like, every detail is important. Everything I wear, people talk about. Everything I do, people talk about. So you want to know every detail. There's like all these stories that I have to debunk in several disjointed sentences. And she didn't have to do that. I also think that when you write a book so young, you don't know what the highlight of your career is. So we had to read 200 pages of her solo career when obviously no one gives a shit about that. Yeah, it definitely felt offensive. It definitely made me grateful for the notes app apology of today. <laughs> I definitely think I was saying it reminds me of when you're little and you have a tantrum and your parents send you to your room to cool down. And so you write them a note and you're like, I just think that maybe. And then you said, and then I was thinking, and then I thought, but you said, and then we did it. <laughs> like, it's just like incoherent, dislocated sentences of what happened next. And then, and then, and then. You said we could go to the store, but then we didn't go to the store. But then later when I thought we were going to go to the store, so I put on my hat. And you took my hat. So now we can't go to the store because you said that only people in hats can go to the store. But he took And you're just like, okay, take a breath. It's going to be okay. But I do think she's like right to be upset. I do think. I understand why she feels defensive. It just doesn't make for a good book. And I wish her and Shania Twain could have gone to editor's camp. But alas. I wish someone would just take her book and Shania Twain's book. Literally just take the source material you have here and turn it into a very good 230-page book. Why did they let it be this long? I don't (laughs) understand. There was so much that could have easily been cut out. I know an entire story about a rich family she knew who got to wear designer clothes on vacation in Switzerland. Why do I know that? I'm sorry. Why do I know about the car that she gave to her mom? This was a long and trying book. You guys, I love you more than anything. Don't forget to buy tickets for New York. We love you so much. And who do we love the most? Thank you so much to our five-star reviewing Wormies. Thank you so much to Megan Murray. You are a ray of sunshine. Thank you to Emily Nicole One, the number one Emily Nicole in my heart. Thank you to... Becca Satellite, I am sending up a signal of gratitude. I hope you receive it. 
Thank you to Paris Hilton's left pinky toe inside a shoe or out of a shoe. You are a beautiful fucking toe. Thank you to Lime and OJ, an absolute citrus dream. Thank you to Riley Dollar Sign. I hope you get every fucking dollar sign in the world. Thank you to Freak Out Exclamation Point at the Dance Club. I hope you only have the most positive freakouts there have ever been. Thank you to Silly Fangirling. We like them, Silly, and I appreciate you to the end of time. Thank you, Clandestine Doe. Okay, I just looked it up, and the thing about clandestine affairs is they're absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you to Nicole Kawaii. You are my favorite island. Thank you to Beth C224. Now, see here, you are a top tier Beth. Thank you to Who's in the House. Hold on one second. I'd like to give you a hearty thank you. Thank you to Mally Knablack. Can I say thank you so much? Thank you to HB Runner. You are number one in this motherfucking race. Thank you to Kristen Marie 94. I appreciate you 94 times over. Thank you, Charlie Mia 123. Mama Mia, I adore you. Thank you to Alice Gnome. Whether you're in a lawn or anywhere, you're the cutest gnome in town. Thank you to Livy Brownie, an absolutely delicious review. Thank you to IC Fant W. You make me want a Fant W. Thank you to Ooh, I'm about to drive in Wahoo. I hope you have the most celebratory drive there's ever been. Thank you to Skinny M21. 21, baby. Cheers. Have a drink on me. Thank you to PNW Concerned Citizen. Thank you for uh, keeping your region safe. Thank you to Christian Bale's girlfriend, Hart. Listen, if you love Christian Bale, I love Christian Bale. Thank you to B-Ball Girl 001. You are an absolute slam dunk in my book. Thank you to Rari. 4736. You tell them, girl. Very fierce. I'm sorry for that. Thank you, Yo Tie Dye Girl. You are an absolute icon, a legend. If my parents divorced, I would trust you to trap them back together. And thank you so much to Tracy Gallagher, my favorite Gallagher out of the Shameless Crew and beyond. Um, thank you guys so much. I love you. Hands on my heart, hands on my heart.